Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on care delivery. Hello there, my name is Dr. Anthony Randage. I'm a graduating fellow here at Ohio Health. In a few weeks, I'll be starting a new position at uh, Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, as well as teaching at the University of South Florida. And today, I'd like to talk to you about subcutaneous administration. I forgot an opportunity. Um, effective, continuous, and intermittent dosing principles without the trauma. Disclosures, I don't have any, but my bank account sure wishes that I did. So the objectives of this presentation are regarding the subcutaneous administration, when to use it, how to place it, and dosing principles associated with it, and how it compares to the routes that we're probably more used to. Before we go any further, I would like to thank a team we've collaborated with on this from Brazil, specifically Daniel and Claudia, who are geriatricians in Rio. Um, a few years ago, they created a source document which we've kind of used and updated and translated into a book chapter we're working on from which this presentation is based. So like any good medical presentation, we start with a case. Doris is an 89-year-old female, former small business owner. She was admitted to the Kobacher House, which is our inpatient hospice house for symptom management, with pain and delirium, as well as end-of-life care. She's a dementia FAS 7C with a PPS of 10%, unable to take PO. So the source for pain is a bilateral femoral neck fracture requiring around 200 OMEs a day, as well as IV hydromorphone, uh, as an IV hydromorphone infusion, as well as terminal hypoactive delirium requiring two milligrams or four milligrams of Ativan in 24 hours and is using one to two breakthroughs of that a day. On the second day of admission, her family's ecstatic. They know that Doris is very comfortable as she has been moaning and grimacing in pain and unable to sleep for around the last month. And they say, you're the best doctor we've ever had. Thank you so much. But of course, that evening she loses IV access. The overnight nurse tried valiantly to place an IV in her three times, and each time you know, wakes the beast, so to say, and Doris is very much in pain and very agitated after this. So they call you and they say, doctor, what should we do? Because this is the subcutaneous presentation, you say, Place a sub-Q line. So before we go any further, I'd like to discuss the history of parenteral therapy. The basis of this was first described by William Harvey in 1628 when he described the principle of circulation. However, as far as treatments from a medical perspective, we really didn't see anything until the 1820 and 1830 outbreaks of cholera in India, the US, and Europe. However, the original experiments with these were unsuccessful due to no, not having sterile techniques as well as not having sterile medications or fluids to infuse. However, the next cholera outbreak in 1865 had numerous recorded excuse me, successes with administering fluids through sub the subcutaneous route as well as intravenously. And as the future went forward, the use of the subcutaneous route for meds and fluids became more common, uh, especially in the realm of pediatrics, based out of a group at the University of Pittsburgh. However, at this point, 
sterile techniques as well as sterile medications and fluids began to become more ubiquitous, such the intravenous route became to be more used, and the SC route lost some of its appeal. However, post-World War II, there were a few advancements in the science behind the subcutaneous route, which led to it kind of coming back into more popularity, one of which is the research dedicated to hyaluronidase, and the second being is the palliative care movement. So next, let's compare the different routes of administration, starting with the oral route. And so, who can tell me some advantages or disadvantages of the oral route of administration? We're going to pass the mic, by the way, if you've not been involved, Luke, edits it out. Does anybody want to start? I'll leave it up here for you to direct to it before. Hey, Sarah. We you don't have any risk oh, of infection. No, okay. no risk of infection. Good. Anyone else? Maybe cheaper. Okay. What about some disadvantages? Metabolism. Speak more to that. So first pass metabolism, you know, it could be um, metabolized into... Uh, an active metabolite or mm -hmm. something of that nature, something that would make it less effective, efficacious versus a different route. What about a situation where we wouldn't use the oral route? If they can't swallow. If the patient's unable to swallow. Perfect. So this is going to be the preferred first-line route. It's going to be the cheapest as well as the most physiologic regarding absorption. However, it, I'm sorry, it can also be as efficacious as IV fluids for rehydration. However, poor GI function and altered mental status sometimes, well, they can make it less efficacious if a person can't swallow or if their GI tract isn't absorbing medications. So next, let's do the same thing with the IV route, positives, negatives. So quicker onset, rapid delivery. Okay. Um, Um, positives also um, so if uh, unable to take PO you know you bypass the PO route mm -hmm. um, and what about some negatives? negatives, uh, risk of infection because it is invasive you're going mm -hmm. right into the vein um, cost probably versus right. the PO route Sorry, difficulty obtaining IV access. Perfect. So one, it, deliver, it ensures delivery of the medication because we don't have to worry about absorption. It can provide rapid fluid resuscitation. However, that comes at the cost of a high technical requirement to actually place the lines, especially when we think about our elderly population as well as our growing obese population. And it's also more costly to maintain due to things such as side effects that tend to be more systemic such as line sepsis and things like that. Now the subcutaneous route. Any ideas about this one? It's relatively simple to place. Good. Still relatively quick delivery. Good. Not uh, as great of a risk of infection compared to IV. Mm -hmm. 
any negatives? Negatives, um, just inexperienced people unable to place it or know the proper education. Mm -hmm. Sorry, you, less volume. You can have some local irritation um, or erythema. Okay. Great job. So it's easier to place and to maintain than an IV line. It's also less costly. The risk of infection and complications are lower than that of IV or intraosseous. What differs from IV is it can be placed, accessed, and maintained by family members or caretakers in the home setting. They don't have to be hospitalized necessarily. However, the volume and the types of medications and fluids are a little bit more limited, the subcutaneous route compared with IV or IO. And finally, the intraosseous route, like the IV administration, is reliable. It was initially developed in the trauma and pediatrics world for easy access in, in trauma cases. Um, however, obtaining access can be quite painful. But compared to IV, the fluid volumes are, and rates are actually a little lower. So what are some indications for using the subcutaneous route? Don't worry, Luke edits that out so you okay. don't have to creep along. Okay. Okay. Let's get exercise. Like character. Indications would be um, loss of IV axis, potentially. Um, inability to tolerate PO. Inability to tolerate PO. That's fine. Okay. So if someone can't swallow either because of dysphagia or confusion or they're nauseous and vomiting or they're short of breath, if they have GI intolerance, there's a high pill burden, they have a bowel obstruction or diarrhea, as well as dementia or delirium. So pretty much anything that would make the oral route untenable. Now in comparison to IV, we said some things when we were going over our overview of the different routes. What kinds of, what kinds of things did we mention there? It's easy to place. Good. They, they don't have to be inpatient to have a sub-Q line? Um, just as effective as IV in terms of uh, delivery. Okay. When is IV preferred? IV is preferred if there is large volumes, I would imagine. Okay. And can you think of any medications that you would want to give IV that you wouldn't be able to give subcutaneously? Medications, not per se, but maybe fluids. Okay, like what? Normal saline okay. or any things of that sort, I guess. Well, great job. So advantages to IV, or comparison to IV, some advantages are it's easier to place and it's more comfortable for patients. It can be performed in any setting. There's rare local or systemic complications. It's cheaper and they can be left in place longer than IV lines. 
Now in comparison to IV, some disadvantages are we are limited somewhat in the volume and the rate of the infusion that we can use. There is some variability in absorption, but not as much as the oral route necessarily. And we are limited in our use of medications and electrolytes that we can infuse, specifically hyper or hypotonic solutions. They tend to be very irritating to the subcutaneous base, so we can't really give those this route. And so, some absolute contraindications. I would imagine like a local skin infection like cellulitis. Okay. Think back to our, think back to our disadvantages in comparison to IV. hypotonic solutions. Perfect. So the only time we're really not going to use subcutaneous lines or really can't use subcutaneous lines is if patients need over 500 mils an hour for fluid resuscitation, if they have bleeding or significant hematoma, or if they're requiring hypo or hypertonic solutions. Some relative contraindications include edema, cachexia, anasarca, thrombocytopenia, ascites, fluid overload, skin infections, or compromised lymphatic circulation. Because we're physicians, we love decision trees, and because especially ER doctors like decision trees, Dr. Luke Seidensticker, who is a fellow with me here, who's a recovering ER physician, came up with this wonderful decision tree for us. Um, if anyone would like a copy of this, feel free to email us, and I'd be more than happy to share it with you. So next, let's, let's talk about how absorption actually occurs. So interestingly, medications and fluids are actually absorbed quite differently. As you can see in our photo, we have the epidermis, the dermis, and the hypodermis. When we place a subcutaneous line, we're placing it actually in the hypodermis. And as you can see, there's penetrating capillaries there, which will absorb our medications. Now on the flip side, Fluid absorption occurs via the lymphatic system, which the lymphatic clefts will remain closed until there's you know, pressure that can overcome that in the subcutaneous space after we give a bolus. So certain things like the volume of fluid, the pressure of fluid, any edema that can oppose those forces otherwise could prohibit and prevent, fact, those are factors that could prevent good absorption. So next, let's talk about some administrative, administration strategies using the subcutaneous route. The first and the most common one that we see are giving a single bolus and rotating the site each injection. Examples that we see of this every day in, in the inpatient setting would be, you know, get our Lovenox as well as insulin. When we're giving these injections, as I said, we're injecting them into the hypodermis, and as you can see here, these, this picture refers to like a standard like one and a half inch needle. If you're coming in at a 90 degree angle, you're likely going to be in the uh, intramuscular space. If you're giving it intradermally, it's going to be much flatter, around 10 to 15 degrees to the skin. However, for the subcutaneous injections, it'll be right around 45 degrees. 
And so I mentioned that I didn't have anything to disclose. I am a professional subcutaneous Lyme recipient on video. So as you could see, Amanda, our wonderful nurse, she cleans the site. That is one of the shorter needles, so she is able to go a little bit more steep into the skin and inject the bolus. Now our next strategy is giving single boluses at a single site. So this, an example of this would be if we're scheduling medications and we're going to be giving them every so many hours and we don't want to keep re-sticking the patient. So we can actually place a line in the subcutaneous space just like we would an IV, except it's easier to do and less painful and patients find it to be more comfortable. There's different types of systems that we can use. Most commonly what you'll see are just your standard butterfly needles that you find in um, you know, the phlebotomy clinic and on the phlebotomy trays. You can also use an over-the-needle system, such as any IV that you would find in the hospital. Some hospitals in some parts of the world will have more advanced systems. This is not an advertisement or an endorsement of either of these companies, but what we have at Ohio Health is the Safety Intima system, which has a cannula like an IV, but it also has a removable needle as well, and um, they place easily and can be accessed easily. Another one that's more common, especially over in Europe, is the SafeFlow 90 needle. As you can see, it has the, dr the dressing built in, and if you look at the picture in the top right, it's a very low-profile system that's really not intrusive for patients. So how do we prepare these lines for placement if we're going to place, if we're, if we're going to place one in a patient? Now what's different compared to IV is due to the limited volume that we have per bolus, we're not going to be flushing five or 10 cc's after each medication dose just because we don't have as much space to flush them into. So as a result of this, we prep the line and we prime the line with the medication that we're going to use. So as you can see here in our video, There's our subcutaneous system. Amanda's cleaning it. Well, first she's placing the cap. And then she's going to take our medication. Each system's different. This one is about half a cc. So as you can see there, Amanda primed the line with about a half cc of the medication that we were going to be administering. Now if we were going to leave the line in longer, there's a different way that we would prep the site instead of just alcohol. 
So the first thing she's going to do is she's going to take some iodine. You can either be a swab or just an iodine pad. She'll start at the center and kind of go out in a circular motion. She'll wait around 30 seconds for that to dry. And she'll come back with an alcohol pad, start the same central area and work her way out, and then wait another 30 seconds for that to dry. You want to wait for the alcohol to dry for a couple reasons, one of which is if you wait for it to dry and you place the line, you puncture the skin, it won't burn. However, if the alcohol is still wet, there can be a burning sensation for patients. Different parts of the body will be able to take different amounts, amounts of fluid just due to the nature and the anatomy of having more subcutaneous tissue. So for example, the anterolateral thighs and the abdomen are able to take a lot of fluid in. Um, a less commonly used area but can be helpful in delirious patients is the interscapular region because it's more difficult for a patient to reach and pull out the line. Next, let's talk about inserting the catheter. So Amanda takes a two by two just to prevent it, the catheter from rubbing against the skin. She pinches the skin, goes in at a 45 degree angle, lays it flat, and then we'll put a clear dressing over the top of it. It's not necessary that it is a clear dressing. You can use tape or anything like that and they will remain in place quite well. As I mentioned, this system has a removable needle, so she'll withdraw the needle from the Teflon catheter. Next, let's talk about administering medications. So as the system's already primed with whatever medication we're using here, she'll pull up her dose, clean the, clean the lure lock, or the needleless connector, excuse me, and then administer the medication. And there's already 0.5 cc's of that medication in the system itself. So when she's administering the next bit, it pushes that into the sub-Q space and that is replaced with the medication she was given, depending on the volume. As you, as you note, there was no flushing behind it. Now the last administration strategy we have are continuous infusions. We can either do fluids, or infusions of medications. The first type is just going to be gravity fed. You know, if you think about some of our hospice patients that are in nursing homes and facilities and things like that, it's very costly to get a pump out to them if we want to administer fluids. So oftentimes what we do is, is we'll place a subcutaneous line at the facility and just hook a bag, an IV bag, up to gravity. The second is using an infusion pump. Generally, we'll see this more in the inpatient setting, whether inpatient hospice or in the hospital. And there's two different kinds of pumps. It's your standard adjustable rate pump, which you'll see in the US in most hospital and inpatient settings. However, in other parts of the world, they have what are referred to as fixed rate pumps, meaning that a certain amount of volume is delivered every hour. So if you're giving a medication, for example, you have to adjust the concentration of the medication to adjust the rate of delivery of that med. So I get this question all the time. 
what rate can we actually infuse this stuff at? At the end of the day, it's based totally on patient comfort. Because when you're injecting, when you're infusing fluid or medications into the, into the subcutaneous space, you know, it's more comfortable than an IV, but patients may notice some edema. And if that becomes intolerable, you know to slow it down. Single boluses, we generally like to keep it around three mils because we know that what, that's what tends to be most comfortable for patients. However, I mentioned hyaluronidase. Um, when giving fluids and medications into the subcutaneous space, um, to go back to the physiology, you know, the one big dependent factor we know is a negatively charged collagen matrix made of uh, hyaluronic acid which is what makes up the structure of the subcutaneous space. Hyaluronidase is a medication that will break those bonds up and thus create more space. So if you use hyaluronidase and you hook up an IV bag to gravity, patients can get over 500 mils an hour without the use of a pump very comfortably. With the use of hyaluronidase, side effects such as discomfort, induration, paresthesias, and erythema, as well as edema, are going to be less known just because there's, more, there's less tension and more space in that area. I mentioned at the beginning, one of the objectives of this presentation was to understand the differences and similarities of the pharmacokinetics of subcutaneous administration when compared with our other routes more commonly seen. So as you can see here, the half-life is going to remain the same. So if medications are following first-order kinetics, which most of the ones we use in hospice and palliative will, the half-life will remain the same. However, the time to C-max will be not quite as fast as IV, but not as slow as PO. It doesn't have to go through all the absorption. But at the same point, we're not directly cannulating the vascular system. So there is a little bit of that process where the um, penetrating capillaries in the subcutaneous space will have to be a little slower to pick up the medicine. So the time to see max will be 30 minutes compared with 15 IV or 60 minutes orally. So next, let's talk about what medications we can give subcutaneously. Now, I mentioned previously that we are not flushing these lines and typically we will give one medication for each line. We'll prime the line with that medication. So oftentimes what you'll see is a patient with a site that has lorazepam written on it and a site that has morphine written on it. However, that's in a perfect resource-rich resource situation. However, in other low, lower uh, resource areas, the number, of, um, the number of lines just may be limited. So oftentimes medications have to be given either together or you have to use one site for more than one medication. So this is a compatibility table made up by one of our pharmacists that we worked, at, worked with on this paper. And you can see um, some medications will play very nicely together and other ones, you know, won't. I know this is a little difficult to see. As with the flowchart, if anyone would like a copy of this, let us know and we'd be more than happy to share. The reason why some of these medications don't work together is they will form a precipitate, which can be very painful for patients. I mentioned flushing earlier. If you are going to use a site 
with more than one medication, it is appropriate to flush, but generally not with the volume that you would do for an IV. Generally one to three mils of normal saline is, is fine. Now this is something that isn't as pertinent to um, us stateside because our, a lot of our medications come prepackaged from our wonderful pharmacist in the correct concentrations and they're diluted as they should be. However, in other areas where they, where they have to make up their own solutions, um, there's some comparisons here between sterile water and normal saline, which are generally going to be the two most common diluents. Um, of these, sterile water has more research behind it. However, normal saline is isotonic and it's better to dilute some of the irritant medications. Some disadvantages are sterile water sometimes will require higher volume, but normal saline is incompatible with haloperidol in high concentrations. So that being said, there's a few medications that we commonly see that we can't give subcutaneously. Are there any that anyone can think off the top of their head? So there's things on here from antibiotics to seizure meds to nausea medications. Um, I think the common one that we'll run into in the palliative world is diazepam or Valium. Uh, the common thing between all these medications is they're termed what are called vesicants, meaning um, due to pH, they can be very irritating to the skin. And these will cause patients a lot of pain if we administer them. We've talked briefly about some of the complications. So what are some complications that come to mind when we think about subcutaneous meds or subcutaneous administration? Local irritation, edema. Um. So, if you'll notice, there is there's edema, cellulitis, discharge, hardening of the skin, hematoma. There's also a very rare complication of necrosis, termed subdermal focal toxicity, which we'll get into. But what you'll notice is all of these side effects are local side effects. I mentioned earlier, we don't see anything with subcutaneous line usage, such as line sepsis or endocarditis, that you do see with use of the uh, venous system for administration of medications. Subdermal focal toxicity, as I said, is a very rare side effect seen with high concentrations of hydromorphone and morphine in pulling through hundreds of papers research papers to come up with this chapter. There's only a few instances that I came across. Actually, only two studies even mentioned this at all. Um, so what is subdermal focal toxicity? It's a painful, permanent erythematous plaque noted on the skin. It looks normal under dermatopathology. However, when they took the time to see if it was reactive to hydromorphone or morphine, there really wasn't any reaction to that. So it's not necessarily due to the medications themselves. There's two leading theories, one of which is just chemical irritation due to high concentration of meds 
essentially the you know making it so concentrated it becomes a vesicant or hydraulic irritation meaning just pushing lots of meds or fluids into the space caused damage in these patients what you'll see is you'll place a line and you, they'll have this effect if you place another line and give the same medication they'll have the effect there if you place a line and don't give any medication they won't have the effect very very rare but just something to keep in mind another question I get asked most commonly is how long can we leave these things in and so the answer well first how long do you guys think we can leave them in Has there, have you seen anything or rules in your work or your training? For subcutaneous? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> no, but I recall someone telling me that as long as it's fine, we don't need to change it. Okay. Perfect. So because of the anatomy, because we're not directly cannulating the venous system, putting us at risk for terrible systemic side effects potentially we can they can be in longer than IV lines there's some correlation with the type of dressing so something like a clear dressing that covers the whole site and the whole system is going to be better allow you to leave it in longer than if you're just using non-sterile tape just because that's just exposing the insertion site to more of the environment and there's evidence that varies on this topic actually and this would be a great topic if any uh, industrious young doc or even older doc wanted to do a study um, there was a wonderful paper that's you know 10 20 years old that said these lines can stay in up to 31 days possibly even longer the only reason why it said 31 days is that was the length of the study um, and the lines in that study were only removed if there was local irritation or things like that and so when you look at other recommendations from some sources they say you know leave it in as long as as long as it needs to be in until there is local site irritation which tends to be what we follow around here finally removing the catheter it's literally just as simple as pulling out the dressing and removing the catheter you can see I did have a little leakage after she removed it however that was the 12th injection I had into my subcutaneous space in that same spot that afternoon so that's generally the most you're going to see as far as bleeding unless someone has a coagulation issue and I will say it was very comfortable for me throughout the whole time you can see my face it didn't flinch so let's end with a few cases 
So BL is a 55-year-old female with myelodysplastic syndrome seen at her home. She's got 8 out of 10 non-radicular low back pain. She's taking Oxycontin, 30 milligrams TID, and has 15 milligram oxycodone available for breakthrough every hour. She used six breakthroughs in the last 24 hours, but she still has symptoms. So being the wonderful physician that you are, you're up in the kitchen with the pill crusher, you're crushing up pills, trying to make it into a slurry. You do, but you go back into the living room and BL starts to fight you and resist your attempt to administer some more medication by mouth. Her mother and her best friend are sitting there at the bedside and they say, doctor, no matter what, BL wants to stay at home. Prior to being discharged to home and enrolling in hospice, she was in the hospital for similar symptoms and was on hydromorphone and tolerated it well. So what's our next step? Place a subkey line. Very good. And so what are you going to use and at what dose? So it seems like she previously tolerated hydromorphone well, so why not uh, veer towards that? So in terms of uh, her oxycodone regimen, she was getting 30 milligrams TID, is that right? So that's the long-acting. Mm -hmm. If you guys need to do the math, yeah. that's fine. And I'm going to throw a curveball in for the sake of, just to make it a little bit more challenging, you call the infusion pharmacy and they say, we are all out of hydromorphone single dose vials, but we have plenty of hydromorphone infusion bags. So, if that were the case, um, her, so the Oxycontin 30 TID, that's 90 um, in a day and that would turn out to be um, nine milligrams of sub-Q dilated in a 24-hour period. And so then roughly about 2.6 of dilated per hour in a 24, is that right? And then she also had the six, six breakthroughs. breakthroughs. Oh, so six breakthroughs of the 15. So that's another 90. So then that would be 2.6, so just double that. About five, five-ish, five point two, dilated an hour. So if we do our math, you know the oxycodone scheduled works out to be 135 OMEs in a day. The breakthrough is an additional 135 OMEs to give us 270 oral morphine equivalents in a day. To convert that to IV dilated, that will give us. A division of 15, which is 18 milligrams of hydromorphone in a day, divided by 24, which gives us an hourly rate of 0.75 milligrams of hydromorphone with a breakthrough dose every 30 minutes of between 0.3 and 0.4, give or take. Our final case is GH who is a 68-year-old male. He's got stage four non-small cell and 
He has terminal agitation delirium in the ICU just after he underwent a an extubation, a compassion extubation for ARDS. And he has terminal secretions. And now that you see him all agitated and delirious, you'll remember the next time you do one of these, you'll pre-medicate a little better. So with his delirium, he's thrashing about in the bed, and he rips out his IV excess. And you're standing at the bedside, and the wonderful ICU nurse has that deer-in-the-headlights look, and she says, Doctor, what do we do next? And you say, place a subcutaneous line. And they say, well, you know, I'm an ICU doctor, I, an ICU nurse. I do all kinds of wonderful things, but I, we just don't use those here. So who can walk our wonderful ICU nurse through how to place one of these lines? So first you have to get the butterfly needle with mm -hmm. the, I'm not sure, I can't remember what it's called. That's fine. That um, butterfly needle's good. Yeah, and then you would uh, prep the area with um, either alcohol swab or the betadine and then alcohol mm -hmm. swab. And um, go in, I think, at 45 degree angle. Mm -hmm. um, and then prime the uh, line with 0.5 of whatever medication you're using. And then administer the medication. Okay. Excellent. One thing I, one small correction. I would prime it prior to placing it because if you prime it after you place it, you're going to push in a half a cc of air into the patient's subcutaneous space, which in an agitated guy at the end of life isn't going to feel very good. But other than that, wonderful, perfect. So in summary, the subcutaneous route is quick, easy, safe, and less expensive than IV. Placing a subcutaneous line is relatively painless and requires much less maintenance than an IV. And finally, subcutaneous medications, which follow first-order kinetics, are very similar to that of IV, except for there's a slightly slower time to C-max, 30 minutes versus 15. Half-lives and the rest of the kinetics remain the same. I would like to give special thanks to Dr. Frank Ferris, Dr. Amy Rack, Luke Seidensticker, our wonderful pharmacist, Jessica Geiger-Hayes, Lisa Smith, who's the head of our infusion team over at Ohio Health, as well as Kathy Spencer, um, a palliative RN over at Grant Hospital, as well as I'd like to thank Claudia and Daniel from Brazil for being such wonderful partners through this project. Any questions? Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum. <laughs>